Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into our interesting discussion today, Michael Copperman, uh, his new memoir, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. We have uh, some unfinished business from our program on Thursday. You'll recall that we uh, uh, sent out to you three questions dealing with public lands. Should President Obama declare a Bears Ears National Monument? Should the President's power to create national monuments be restricted? And what do you think about the Public Lands Initiative? We talked with Representative Chris Stewart, with Scott Groney, Executive Director of Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and Ute Mountain Ute Councilwoman Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk from the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. We heard from many of you. Thank you. And the comments keep coming in. We appreciate that as well. You can keep those coming in to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So we wanted to get to these additional comments on. First up is Nancy Kurtz who says, thanks for the great show. Scott and Regina were eloquent, and your comprehensive and respectful approach was lovely. Thanks for that, Nancy. Nancy goes on, I'm slowly and laboriously making my way through the elegant but dense and challenging book, The Emerald Mile. Not exactly your typical summer read, but riveting nonetheless. And uh, a quote, I've never felt it did any good to be reasonable about anything in conservation because when you give away... What you give away will never come back, ever. When it comes to saving wilderness, we cannot be extreme enough. Nancy says, these words of Martin Lytton resound and find the perfect storm in the PLI process. Like Pam Hackley, who commented during the show, I was part of that process, and as she wrote, it was truly, was alarming from the very beginning. It sounds so reasonable, and yet is insidiously and inherently wrong. You cannot divide up this baby like it was some kind of fruit salad. There is something for everyone. It's called wilderness. That's uh, Nancy Kurtz. Thank you uh, for that, Nancy. Next up is uh, Linda Musto. Uh, A simple sentence. Yes, declare Bears Ears a monument. Uh, Thanks for that, Linda. Next is um, Red Ulrich. who is editor-in-chief, according to a signature of Outdoor Utah Adventure Guide. Red says, the PLI is nothing but a stall tactic. Declare it a national monument immediately for the benefit of Utah citizens and all Americans. That is Sir Red Ulrich. Uh, Next up, a couple of uh, emails in from Deanne Hunt. Deanne first says, so very frustrating to listen to this guy. The land is not being misused or mistreated. Two to one. Only because they were bussed in, um, I think referring to the original meeting with Sally Jewell, all were invited to meetings, so yes, they declined. Not all Native Americans wanted, referring to Bears Ears National Monument. Deanne then emailed back in, uh, saying, uh, pointing out 25 cases uh, of vandalism in Bears Ears. Uh, and Bears Ears, 25 cases in San Juan County from 2011 to 2016 versus 1,400 cases of vandalism last year alone in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And uh, then Deanne cites uh, the sources for that. And uh, finally from Deanne, uh, a lengthy um, writing from Gail Johnson. She quotes, this is, uh, so I'll go through this, um, probably won't get all of this on, but we'll, we'll try to get the essence of it. This is Gail Johnson, Reasons I Oppose the Bears Ears National Monument. And uh, there are 17 of these, I'll go quickly, uh, but thanks for the email, appreciate these. Uh, one, unconstitutional, reasons uh, I oppose Bears Ears National Monument. Unconstitutional, Executive Order via Antiquities Act. Congress has the authority. Uh, two, existing laws. There are existing laws already in place to address every issue stated by proponents as reasons for designation. Three, archaeology and sacred sites. DNA tests show that American Indians in the area are not descendants of the Anasazi. Uh, four, American Indian Angle. Since before the 1980s, groups have been trying to get Congress to designate over a million acres of wilderness as wilderness in this county. In the late 1980s, uh, San Juan County Commissioners Mark Maryboy worked with Congressman Orr to try to get uh, Cedar Mesa designated as NCA for traditional American uses. Commissioner Maryboy is Navajo. Why did he not bring it up uh, at that time? Uh, the sacredness to local Indians, this 1.9 million acres, and other proponents uh, now claim it's sacred. Uh, five, vandalism and looting. There's no evidence that a monument designation will decrease or prevent vandalism and looting. Six, grazing allotments. Even if grazing is allowed, the value of the allotment will re- reduce to zero. Uh, seven, colonialism. Utah is not a colony of the federal government. Eight, private property. There is private property and water rights within the boundaries of this proposed designation. These will be held hostage by the federal government. Nine, the Utah Navajos. Utah Navajos have never been treated well by their own tribal government 
um, in Window Rock. Ten, racial discrimination. Proponents state that existing uses will continue to be pref- uh, preferred given American Indian uses. This, that opens up a whole lot of room for racial conflict as well as user conflict. Eleven, lies, deceit, and manipulation. Um, and I'll uh, go on because of time. Twelve, prosperous local economy. A single industry economy does not create a prosperous economy as proponents would have people believe. Tourism generates very few family-sustaining jobs. Thirteen, bureaucrat agendas. Um, Fourteen, larger appetite. Groups pushing for the monument will have their sights on more than this 1.9 million acres. Next move west will be pushing across Colorado and Green River to swallow up country and create their already planned greater canyonlands. Uh, 15 motive this proposal is not being proposed out of good science good data or anything of that kind um, it's being pushed by emotion ego lust for power and for some vindictiveness 16 Indian lands for those who say this land should be returned to American Indians then this proposal is not nearly large enough 17 Obama legacy President Obama uh, quoting here President Obama pursuing a legacy has used the Antiquities Act 22 times to set aside 265 million acres of federally administered lands and waters that's quoting from a, uh, a source there I reserve the right to amend and add to this anytime, says Gail Johnson, who assigns uh, themselves a San Juan County resident, born and raised. And uh, Deanne, who uh, quotes all this, uh, adds, Sometimes I have a hard time putting my thoughts and feelings on paper regarding Bears Ears, but I echo Gail's sentiments. I was raised as a rancher's daughter in San Juan County. I love the land. That's from Deanne Hunt. Thanks for that, Deanne. Um, let's see. And then uh, next up is uh, Destiny Bingham, who says, I am a Ute and have lived in San Juan County for 28 years, and I say no monument. This is our home, our land, and now our own representatives want to give it away. Shame on them. Where will we get wood? Where will we hunt? This is crazy. We cannot let this happen. Uh, hashtag catch monument, K-A-C-H monument, and hashtag no bears ears monument. That's from Destiny Bingham. Thank you for that. And uh, finally, uh, this comment has come to us from uh, Veronica Egan, who says, Utah's legislators, both state and federal, seem not to understand that a clear majority of their constituents support protection of Utah's magnificent public lands. Instead, they're still awaiting the next big fossil fuel boom. It's time for Utah to enter the 21st century and realize that its public lands are far more valuable if left in their natural state rather than turned into industrial wastelands. Keep it in the ground. That's Veronica Egan. Uh, thanks for all of those comments. Keep those coming to upraccess at gmail.com. And thanks for joining us for Access Utah. When Michael Copperman left Stanford University for the Mississippi Delta in 2002, recruited by Teach for America, he imagined he would fit uh, lift uh, underprivileged children from the narrow horizons of rural po- poverty. Well-meaning but naive, the Asian-American from the West Coast says he soon lost his bearings in a world divided between black and white. Trying to help his students, he often found he couldn't afford to give what they required, sometimes with heartbreaking consequences. In his memoir, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta, which is out from University Press of Mississippi, Copperman describes his disorientation in the divided world of the Delta, even as he marvels at the wit and resilience of the children in his classroom. To them, he is at once an authority figure and a stranger minority than even they are, a lone Asian, an outsider among outsiders. From 2002 to 2004, Michael Copperman taught fourth grade in the rural black public schools in the Mississippi Delta with Teach for America. Now he teaches writing to low-income, first-generation college students of diverse backgrounds at the University of Oregon. His work has appeared in The Sun, Oxford American, Guernica, Creative Nonfiction, Copper Nickel, He's garnered fellowships and awards from the Munster Literature Center, the Oregon Arts Commission, Literary Arts, and Breadloaf Writers Conference. And he joins us now. We appreciate you taking the time, Michael Kaufman. Uh, it sure is good to be here. Uh, I wonder if we could do a little bit of your background. You write that you were uh, a doctor's son raised in a sleepy college town. You excelled by pure dedication, you say, in academics and also wrestling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Eugene, Oregon is a really beautiful place to grow up, um, and uh, I suppose that my path was not always towards being uh, an educator. I was, you know, sort of from a generation of overachievers, um, and I guess I was an overachiever myself, at least on paper. Um, I was a college athlete, um, so I went to Stanford on, on wrestling scholarship, um, but I suppose I was always also a bit of an intellectual. Um, and then I, uh, right, I joined Teach for America 
back in 2002 when I finished at Stanford. And you, uh, you describe yourself, let, I just, let me just read this, I can't do this any better than you do. Um, you describe yourself as a mixed-race, Japanese, Hawaiian, Russo-Polish Jew, who could be Asian, Hispanic, perhaps Eskimo or Greek, or some other unknown miscegenation. <laughs> That's quite the, quite the sentence. So first of all, before you even get to the Delta, and, and there are a lot of experiences based on, on your you know, racial makeup there, um, how was that growing up then in Eugene? You know, I was often <laughs> I was often the only um, Asian person, one of two or three minority students um, in the public schools that I attended growing up. Um, I guess I was always an outsider in some ways. Eugene, of course, is uh, is a very sort of um, allegedly liberal place where people are very accepting and tolerant, and everyone joins hands and circles left and things come by. Uh, um, the schools that I went to, at least early on, were not necessarily that way. So I always understood difference um, from a really early age. Um, but I suppose that I was never uh, as much an outsider <laughs> in Eugene as I was when I actually came to the Delta. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's quite the experience. Um, I wonder if I could uh, maybe have you paint the pictures you do very, very nicely at the, at the very beginning of the book. Um, under the under the chapter heading uncertainty, just that first page and over the paragraph. Sure. Uh, it starts, uh, the the physical setting and then then sort of setting up uh, sort of the, the the situation with regard to race. Yeah, and I think that this first section um, is a return. Uh, I went back to the Delta after I think probably perhaps five or six years away. Um, so the I followed fourth... the freeway. Oh, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to point out that it, that the uh, we'll talk about this. You, you taught fourth grade, and so by the time you went back, you, your students would have been, I guess, in high school. Yeah, or early middle school. Or early middle point. school. Yeah. Um, today, of course, they're well. Some of them are college age. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I followed the freeway from the Memphis airport, and every car seems a tall, tired window tinted forward with a blonde man or woman peering through my windshield or a fender-bent, paint-chipped sedan full of blacks who meet and meet my gaze as they pass. I slip out the low end of the city, the miles of gas station convenience store fried chicken joints, the family dollar and save-a-lot and save-you-mores and clubs with hand-lettered signs advertising free blues, turn onto the Reverend James L. Nutter's Parkway that becomes Highway 61, and watch buildings lose integrity, roofs, walls, and porches folding, bending, beginning to give way. It's imminent in the roll of tires to pitted concrete, the Delta, King Cotton, Land of the Lyncher, Black Men, the Blues. Trees begin along the roadway, first a scattering between structures, then tunnels of dense overhanging growth. Great straight kudzu trees, passage without exit. Suddenly, there's open plain and a girdered bank of power lines over the freeway, wires hung with arterial strands of kudzu cut from the root the left aerial. And then the sign, Mississippi, it's like coming home. The air conditioning is cold, and out the tinted windows of the rental Chevy, heat waves shiver the furrowed fields. The stalks brown with October, but the bulls swollen, flights of cotton bursting free like torn feather pillows. Clouds of cotton rise behind the car, leave only an erasing white against the blue sky, and ahead only relentless asphalt and dust. I drive like this for hours, keep my eyes fixed ahead for signs I'm near. Finally, through Rosewood and past and back to the flat fields, here is the catfish plant puffing steam from twin chimneys. And then the sign, welcome to promise. And it all seems the same, even to the dusty Ford doing 20 under the speed limit that I come on and get caught behind, even to the driver's helmet of blonde hair. And then, as he cranes his head about to see me, the stare, disbelieving and irate, as if to say, Chinaman, you know you still don't belong. Hmm. Uh, I wonder if you could compare this. What, you know, A lot of this, of course, is about race. Um, I, I got a kick out of your... Um, you said you you th- you thought that you'd maybe be set up for to be prepared for some of these issues because you were the issues chair of the multiracial identity and advocacy student organization at Stanford, and you you thought yes, maybe that taught have, you all we, about poverty and inequality. That and I, I I would imagine a lot of college students coming out would would maybe have a little bit of that naivete and hubris. Well, and I think that there is um, absolutely nothing wrong with academic study. Right, of our country's history and of persistent inequalities that exist. Um, I think that the theoretical understanding 
of those things or the ways that sometimes um, people, especially students of diverse backgrounds, tend to experience those things through their lives, you know, those are important things to know and, and understand. But I think that an intellectual understanding of that um, does not prepare anyone right, to really understand what it's like to be in a place like the Mississippi Delta, um, which is, you know, the poorest and blackest part of the poorest and blackest state in the nation. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly had some experience. I had been in some, some actually Teach for America classrooms in East Palo Alto, which was right across the way from, you know, from uh, Stanford with its, its you know, mile-long Palm Drive. Um, and, you know, those classrooms were mostly Latino, um, I still did not really understand, um, you know, the, the sorts of persistent um, divisions that exist in some parts of the country. Really? Um, and so, you know, I, I knew statistics mm -hmm. <laughs> or thought I did. But, you know, at Stanford, the kind of advocacy that, that we engaged in in the uh, HAPA Issues Forum, which was a group that I was the issues chair of, you know, were things like uh, we need to fight for uh, more than one box being able to be checked on the census. <laughs> mm, right, right. <laughs> because yes. we don't want to be forced to choose about um, our racial background. And, you know, that, that's, uh, that's an important issue. And, in fact, I think the census was changed. And I, I as a multiracial person, I appreciate the ability to check more than one box. But I have to say that that, that, sort, of, um, that sort of advocacy or activism feels a little bit um, absurd when you run it up against, uh, you know, against the sorts of conditions that, that you run into in a place like the Delta. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, you know, it, and you had more than just academics. You had lived some of this. I, I, you know, you, you were, I think, sometimes ostracized, sometimes bullied, right, because of your racial makeup, <laughs> even in a liberal I town was. like, like Eugene, I was, right? but I, but, you know, but I did not face... Um, the sort of class barriers that that accompany those divisions, mm -hmm. right? So I was one of the sort of, you know, I guess we would say lucky people who, you know, perhaps um, don't have the privilege of being white, but do get um, the opportunities, right, of having had my, my parents sort of raise themselves a generation before me, my folks who did not have a lot of wealth and money, but they uh, made their own way. Um, my father put himself uh, through medical school by janitoring, <laughs> never actually finished college because he found a school that would take him. Um, and it sort of, you know, led me to be able to live a really comfortable life by the time that I was in a, you know, a beautiful provincial little college town like Eugene. Um, and so I didn't face, you know, the, the sorts of things that someone who's actually born into poverty um, has to contend with. Mm -hmm. I faced, you know, racism in some ways um, or difference, but I think that I think that that is not the same thing as having, you know, as, as being a child who's born into into rural Mississippi um, with no real choice, right, mm -hmm. about the color of their skin or, or what that is going to tend to mean, given the burden of history there. Um, and so, you know, it, it is very different. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's not the same thing, and I think that. Um, too often, we tend to advocate for the things that are right in front of us. And so students who are fortunate enough to make it to college, even students of color, some of whom have faced those sorts of barriers, but some of whom, like myself, have not necessarily fully contended with them. Um, I think we tend to focus on our own experiences within that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that's what I was trying to get at when I talk about Stanford. Stanford's a, a beautiful place, but the chances of a child from the Mississippi Delta making a school like Stanford, those, those odds are immensely low. Yeah. The chances yeah. of someone like myself making it to Stanford from Eugene, Oregon, having gone to some of the best public schools in the nation, are quite different. Hmm. The picture you paint of uh, Promise, by the way, Promise, Mississippi, it's in the Mississippi River Delta, a population under just under 12,000 people. You say uh, the, the Delta, speaking generally, is some 77% black. Whites own 95% of uh, small businesses, uh, economic disparity you were just talking about. And as I was reading uh, through the book, uh, I guess I was 
I guess I'm in a bubble here. You know, I, I, I uh, probably not alone. I'm a white man sitting in a very white state, uh, white town. Um, but th- this place where whites and blacks are very much separated. You went to Walmart, for example, you know, on your first <laughs> first day there. The uh, groups stay separate, right? And it's it, it, there's a lot of racism. The comments you yeah, heard, I mean, it's shocking. It, this is one of, I mean, you know, the, the Delta, the Delta is in some ways, uh, I guess, an anomaly. And in some ways, I think it's it's um, representative of the kinds of divisions that you often get in parts of the South. Um, but it's a place perhaps somewhat less, um, how to put it, less reconstructed along the modern lines that most Americans uh, think of when they conceive of um, when they conceive of America, right, or contemporary America. Um, it, it's a place where the the legacy of King Cotton is particularly deep. Um, you know, most everything was cotton plantations um, in the Delta. So it's the alluvial floodplain. When I say the Delta, right, I'm referring to the alluvial floodplain of the Mississippi. Um, which is a, I think, a hundred mile or so swath that includes both parts of Arkansas and Mississippi. Um, so it's a geographical region, right? It's not necessarily like um, a county or a part of a particular state. Um, and in those areas, the population is dominantly black, but whites still own most of the land, most of the businesses. It's a very, very divided um, society. And I mean, I, I think when I say that, you know, I for example, was looking for a place to be able to um, work out, right, because I was a college athlete. Um, and so <laughs> the, there was a country club, which had facilities, as I understood it. And so I went to the country club to take sort of a tour. Um, and, you know, and found <laughs> that, of course, all of the people who use the very, very modest golf course and then the you know the the sort of main club and the house and the bar that was there and the restaurant, it, all of the staff were black and in fact some of them were parents of children that I taught in the local public schools. Um, and then you know on the <laughs> um, walking about um, using the facilities were you know largely white people and in this particular place at least the day I went largely white men. I opened the door to the weight room and had, you know, a bunch of people turn, go silent and stare at me. And I thought, this is probably not the right place for me. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Um, And so, you know, I I was not prepared for those sorts of divisions. Um, And I think that Mississippi is a place where you can see those things pretty clearly. You know, with Walmart, which was actually one of the places that was integrated in some ways, right? It was one of the only places you could get, you know, sort of big box store products. Um, people would mix, and it isn't as if there's no social contact at all between whites and blacks. Mm. But people are, the, the, the society is very divided still, both economically, um, and then in terms of the ways that that's reinforced, I think, by by the school system. Mm. And, and divided to such an extent that it surprised me reading it. I, I don't know, but do you think I should have been surprised? I, I I, I think we, you know, sometimes we yearn so much for a post-racial society that we maybe purposely put blinders on. Yeah, I think, and, and actually it was really interesting to watch the um, the recent um, court ruling regarding desegregation in Cleveland, Mississippi, which is fairly close to where I taught. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it temporarily sort of made the news um, and made a splash. And for the most part, the national media got the story completely wrong. <laughs> that is to say that they did not have the context to understand. Um, Cleveland, Mississippi has uh, a community college, right, Delta State University, which means that the population is relatively educated. And in some ways, the the racial dynamics of Cleveland are more modern than other places. So that there was one high school in Cleveland where often um, – it, it, nearly half of the, the the students were white, nearly half of the students were black, which is what we would perhaps expect in a place that's, you know, some 70% or so black. 
And then there was another high school that was also public within the town, which was largely black. Um, in the rest of the Delta, a school with uh, full integration is a complete anomaly. Um, and so in, in the years following the 1971 Supreme Court ruling that said the Mississippi actually had to desegregate, um, private academies, white schools, basically usually associated with churches, took up the population, which was white for the most part in most of the Delta. Hmm. Um, there were scholarships at the local academy to ensure that poor white children did not have to go to school with black children. Um, and that situation of private academies persists through much of the Delta, and in fact through many parts of the South today. Um, the Delta, of course, is what I'm actually familiar with, and so mm -hmm. I, I can at least speak to that being reality. Yeah. Um, I had a house that I had rented in one of the few sort of um, mixed or transitioning neighborhoods uh, that was near the, the black ninth grade school. Um, and so, but next door, with outward-facing razor wire, you know, eight-foot fences, and then razor wire, was an enclosed, beautiful, manicured football field where the, um, where the academy, that is to say the white football players, would practice. Um, and the story that I at least was told was that in 71, the all-white school board um, turned over that field for the price of $1, to the newly established private white academy. And that field adjoined the ninth grade public school, but the black public school students who would often sort of stand with their hands on the chain link fence, I could see them watching the football players practice each day from my house before I left. Um, I mean, sorry, before I left, when I returned from school. I mean, it, that, that situation <laughs> is, is the, the the degree of segregation and of division that still exists in the Delta. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a stark picture that stood out to me in the, from the book as well. It's just a kind of a, a metaphor there, and and the the grass which stands in lush green grass on that field in the uh, the academy, and then school where you taught, you know, sparse patches of, of brown brown grass and it's run down. Uh, let's uh, let's take a break when we come back more with Michael Copperman, who's author of Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. It's out from University Press of Mississippi. Uh, Michael Copperman from 2002 to 2004, uh, who grew up in Eugene, Oregon, graduated from Stanford University. He taught fourth grade in rural black public schools of the Mississippi Delta with Teach for America. He now teaches writing to low-income, first-generation college students of diverse backgrounds at University of uh, Oregon. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. When we come back, I'll have Michael Kaufman introduce us to uh, one of the students that really stayed with him um, on his mind, Serenity, who really stayed with me since reading the book. Um, and, and I'll alert you, Michael Kaufman, to have, have you read her, uh, her poem uh, when we come back as well. Uh, more following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A business leader who built a company came to me complaining, I can't solve all the problems. I just don't have the time. My response was, why are you solving problems? A leader should be a problem clarifier and coach those who stand face to face with problems. But good leaders don't solve problems. They help others avoid, prioritize, and yes, sometimes solve problems. It is a real challenge for most of us to let go of the things that we were good at earlier in our careers and move from becoming a problem solver to a problem clarifier. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Michael Copperman. He's author most recently of a memoir, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. When he left Stanford University for the Delta in 2002, recruited by Teach for America, he imagined he would lift underprivileged children from the narrow horizons of rural poverty 
Well-meaning but naive, the Asian-American from the West Coast says he soon lost his bearings in a world divided between black and white. Trying to help students, he often found he couldn't afford to give what they required, sometimes with heartbreaking consequences. The memoir once again is teacher, two years in the Mississippi Delta. You're welcome to join the conversation. Two ways you can do that, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Perhaps you've had similar experiences, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can join us toll-free by a telephone to one 800 826-1495, Michael Copperman, you're you're situated sort of at a outsider outsider's outsider, right? You come to the Delta as a Asian American. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us how each of these sides of this binary world, this this divided world, blacks and whites, maybe starting with uh, with uh, with the whites. How did they uh, see you? How did they treat you? Yeah. Well, you know, so. <laughs> It's interesting because in many ways, um, my contact with whites was often initiated by whites. And by whites, I mean white people from the Delta. There was, of course, a fairly large cohort of um, of other Teach for America core members, so recent college graduates like myself. Um, and so, you know, in terms of them, you know, they were peers, right, um, and and coming from all over the country. Um, but, it, but often... <laughs> Often white people from the Delta would come up to me with a question, which, of course, I was already familiar with, but which felt particularly pointed in the Delta, you know, which is some version of what are you, um, you know, uh, where are you from? Or they would say something that was usually vaguely um, racist <laughs> uh, that involved uh, I don't know, sushi or Chinese food. <laughs> Or something along those lines, but but uh, often then immediately couched with uh, some sort of caveat about how they thought of me as being nearly white. They you know they appreciated that you know that I was not like the black students that I taught in the public schools, um, or they weren't sure how I could you know they were sorry that I had to deal with these you know monsters. But this was the sort of thing that you have here in Mississippi, or those same sorts of sentiments coded often. Hmm. Um, uh, there wasn't, you know, again, a great deal of contact. <laughs> um, and so I wouldn't like to, I don't want to make sweeping statements about the white community in the Delta, um, except to say that my experience there was very, very much uh, that of an outsider. And then in terms of difference, that sort of being front and center. In <laughs> the place that I spent most of my time, of course, was in the public schools. And at the school that I taught, you know, I was certainly... Um, as the children like to say, a Chinaman. <laughs> Ooh, we that Chinaman. Um, but I was also a teacher, which I think is in its own category unto itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so the children understood that in some ways to be different, or at least that, that role, particularly with the children that I taught, um, was, you know, was a kind of, I won't say a kind of belonging, but certainly um, a role that I, that I occupied that, that surpassed any racial differences that, that might have existed. And you're, you're uniquely, I guess, uh, centered there, uh, perspective, have perspective perhaps of sort of being in the middle. Um, how did you come away from, from that? What did you, what did you think about the, that, that binary world? And you, you don't quite fit into that binary world. I mean, it was interesting in that I think it gave me a, a unique perspective on on those differences and on the degree to which the Delta is still very fixed um, around around that difference that is, of course, you know, so so grounded in in the history of the Delta, right, and mm -hmm. also in persistent inequality that it still exists there, um, n not fitting in within. <laughs> That binary, I guess I saw it from both sides in some ways. I mean, certainly it, it was um, it was eye-opening for me to understand the degree to which um, white people would often, to some extent, justify their racism um, or try to, you know, pull me toward. I think what they thought of as being their side. I still remember when I was trying to find a house, one of the um, one of the the people who we had been referred to in terms of um, you know in terms of having some places to rent who was in local real estate you know wanted to tell me as an aside immediately that you know 
we have we have good whites and bad whites, you know, sorry, good we have good blacks and bad blacks, you know, and the problem with Mississippi is that all of the good ones left for the cities. This is, you know, the sort of narrative or the ways that I think people had justified the way that they saw the world. And it was very strange to be in the middle or to be sort of asked to come join this side or that side. Um, with regards to, you know, <laughs> to the black community, you know, I was, uh, I was, let's see, I was a, um, an anomaly, but, you know, but something to be commented on. And certainly I didn't ever really feel, um, let's see, I didn't feel oppressed by the racism from the black community. When kids called me Chinaman, they had no experience really for the most part of Asian people, except for the couple Chinese restaurants. There were Delta Chinese who had built the railroads, some of whom had stayed, but for the most part, I didn't really fit in, especially because I don't necessarily phenotypically you know, present as being, well, certainly as being Chinese. Mm. So, you know, so I was Jackie Chan. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, and the, the kids, the kids were just kids. Yeah, that's, that, that stands out in the book. The kids are kids, right? They're, no matter what situation and, uh, you know, delightful. But uh, it must have been shocking, some of the circumstances. And you, that bleeds, of course, into the into the classroom. And, and, and reading the book, you, you were shocked. Um, I wonder if you'd tell me about, I'll have you read her poem after we set this up. Uh, tell me about uh, Serenity. You, you devote, uh, you know, the first first portion of the the book uh, in large measure to to this this little girl who who um, obviously uh, made an impact on you yeah I mean serenity was all, most all of the children for the most part that I taught um, were poor by American standards um, you know we're growing up in poverty um, but the <laughs> Serenity's poverty was of, I, I would say, in some ways, like a different level or scale. I think in the book I, I say that it was almost um, say, <laughs> third world poverty as opposed to first world poverty in some ways. Um, she had a very unstable family. She lived in a house where the windows had been boarded up and covered in plastic, where the you know the, the porch and the walls in some ways were sort of sagging. Everything was dry rotted out. Um, the garbage didn't get taken out, but instead was sort of piled in the front. Um, she did not have a very stable home environment, to say the least. Her water was often turned off, so you could smell sort of her from a distance. Her clothes had holes and often were not washed. And the other children, um, as children will, were, were you know immensely cruel about the ways that she was, which, of course, made me feel protective. That and the fact that she was um, incredibly curious and smart and interested in reading. Um, when I say interested, what I mean is that she wanted to be left alone, you know, to read her Harry Potter book. Um, and so for the most part, I sort of let her do that as much as I could once she had finished her work. Um, and, you know, she gained some absurd number of grade levels of reading in my class, not necessarily through any real strong instruction that I provided, um, but simply because she read all the time. Um, and so... You know, in my head, I had somehow uh, reached her, changed her um, course, given her an opportunity. At least that's what I had told myself. Um, but, you know, as I sort of framed the piece, I discovered later in following her that that was not necessarily true, or at least that that was reductive. Um, it was about me mm. and not necessarily about her or about the circumstances and the life that was available to her. Mm. Isn't that uh, just that uh, parenthetically? Isn't that true of all of us in so much of our lives? It's we overlay our own uh, perspective on on other other people. It's it's so hard to to break through that. I think it is, and I, I don't think that you can fault, uh, for example, um, young idealistic college students who want to make a difference, right, and go join the Peace Corps or join Teach for America or AmeriCorps. Um, or any of these other service organizations, right? Um, you think that there's much to be learned from that. But, you know, so often I think we we look at service um, as a kind of a, a box to add to our resumes, or at least that's how such things are presented to, you know, high school students as they're moving up or even college students later on. 
Um, and the idea is that, you know, in some ways, like, this is about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this is about your achievement, your success, what you can do, uh, the series of experiences that you're collecting, right, to wear around like a shiny belt. Like, I went to the Mississippi Delta, and children were really poor there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or I helped the children there, you know, I saved children from the poverty that they faced, and now everyone is going to be successful. I'm, I, I'm framing this in this very dismissive way. I don't think that that's fair necessarily to the young man that I was, um, or even to you know other core members, other people who go. I think people have a better sense of at least the narrative that they're supposed to to, to overlay when they go. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a measured difference. I will do what I can. But Teach for America's rhetoric is not restrained. Right? Mm-hmm. Say one day all children will have the opportunity to you know, to gain an excellent education and all children, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was the mission essentially that I had dedicated myself to when I joined. Um, and you know, I meant it in as much as I (laughs) had no understanding of what that actually meant, but that I was willing to work hard. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what I found was that my best efforts were not, often adequate or competent, um, that often there was very little that I was able to actually do. And that even with those students who seemed to be success stories, um, like Serenity, who left my class reading at an eighth grade level in the fourth grade, right? Um, when she had entered, you know, a little below fourth grade level. Um, it would be, it was easy to cast her as some sort of success story right? Mm-hmm. And the boundless future was hers. But really, she lived in a house where the water was often turned off, right? And where there was food insecurity, and where she wasn't always sure if there was going to be an adult or responsible adult at home, and where she was charged with taking care of her younger brother and sometimes her cousins, you know? And where the schools um, locally were, you know, filled with educators who were doing their best under very difficult circumstances, but where, you know, the degree of opportunity that she was likely to receive down the line was was not necessarily so high. Her life was not going to be easy because she could read well. And that she read well had more to do with her desire to be lifted into, you know, the escapes of an imaginary world where children had control over their own lives and could wield a wand than it was about, you know, some sort of abstract desire to, um, you know, attend college or become a doctor. Um, not that Serenity didn't have aspirations, but simply that, you know, that my conception of these things or my ideas of success were still based in myself, hmm. right? And that was, you know, a kind of inevitable hubris, I think. I think that probably most teachers in some ways can relate to that earlier in their careers, you know, teaching is one of the professions with the highest attrition rate. It's not just that it's difficult to teach anywhere in any classroom, you know, even in a place that's of mixed income or is even, you know, a private school with upper middle class students. But I think teachers have to learn and reckon with the idea that it's not necessarily about them and what they can do. And certainly being an educator is not about your own reputation or success or your own ego or even what you can accomplish in some kind of abstract way in, you know, in numbers and, um, and percentages and some kind of demonstrable set of gains. Um, you know, Teach for America had, has as an organization committed very hard to that idea. At least they certainly had back in the years of No Child Left Behind, right, which now we've sort of abandoned as a, as a, means of reform, but which was a bipartisan effort, right, to right some of the nation's inequalities. And I was there, I was in Mississippi, right at the height of, of Bush's sort of attempt to mandate, right, significant gains, exactly whatever, whatever that meant, and have all children reach proficiency by way of either punishing schools, which didn't reach those metrics, um, you know, or offering resources and then punishing those schools, and then rewarding schools where you know, where things seem to work out. 
I wasn't surprised to find that the local middle school in Eugene, Oregon, which served largely faculty students from, uh, sorry, faculty, largely faculty children from the University of Oregon here in town, and then had some moderate degree of other um, kids from the community who were of mixed income. The, the fact that the teachers were excellent, public schools were, uh, at least before what's called Measure 5 here in Oregon, well-funded. And that was the only school in the state that actually met No Child Left Behind's mandates for proficiency. Um, and so, you know, it, it, if you look at that school, not only was the staff amazing, but the, the children themselves were coming from backgrounds where largely they had had the resources and the support and the enrichment to be ready to excel. Um, and so, you know, if you contrast that middle school with a school like the one that I was at, it, you know, it, it it becomes pretty clear what we're talking about when we when we speak of educational inequality. Mm-hmm. And you write in the book that uh, you know every few years there's a crisis and uh, and uh, attention is paid and a, a new program is rolled out. Um, and, and, you know, and then we forget about it for a while and, and a new program is rolled out again. Uh, given these problems, these inequalities that seem to be so baked in, what, uh, what is the answer, do you think? Well, and I, and I, you know, I am extremely wary of trying to offer answers. Um, especially wary, I think, after I've spent the last 10 years here in Oregon, um, teaching low-income, first-generation, at-risk students, often of diverse background, which is to say mostly students of color here, um, in an effort to sort of retain them. They drop out of the, the uh, University of Oregon, the flagship university of the state that I teach at, at something like two to three times the rate of majority students. Um, and, you know, I've come to realize that not only are there no guarantees, but that you know, it is always, in some ways, an uphill battle um, to have even a child who is beating the odds um, get a college education or succeed. Um, and so, you know, what are the answers? <laughs> um, I think we have to face up to the fact, first, that there are severe problems and that the degree of inequality that exists, of educational inequality, in which the you know the place that you're born into or your background is likely to define your success. I think, I think we have to recognize that that's not just, and that that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I don't want to say that our plate is empty in terms of what we would do, but you know, I mean, literally every two or three years, the New York Times cycles through another set of our of articles, right, which suggests that there is no real um, hope. And I I don't think that that's fair either. I think that there are tremendous efforts trying to be made in bridging some of the gaps between high school and college. Programs like, you know, Upward Bound and uh, many other sort of, um, many other sorts of programs that try to guide students through those sorts of transitions who are high achieving. But then when you look at the number of students who drop out because they see no real relation between what happens in the classroom and the circumstances of their lives. I think we have to say that our public education system is not successful, which isn't, I, I don't think, like a reason to disinvest in our public school system. I'm really, really wary of that. I know that, for example, Diane Ravitch, who has long been an opponent of Teach for America, her sort of latest switch is that, her latest sort of position, as I understand it, is that we need to address poverty, and the economic inequalities that drive uh, educational inequality. And it is absolutely true, right, that class is the fundamental factor and that that leads to funding streams for public schools. But I don't believe for a second that our country has the, the real will and focus, let alone the political mandate and capital, to do anything to try to actually address the economic inequalities that exist. Mm. Um, I I find that highly unlikely Mm. Um, to say that we would somehow actually have, you know, a sort of modern war on poverty 
and that that's likely to be the way that we actually address educational inequality. I think that that becomes a smokescreen or a reason for inaction, where that makes the problem intractable and then gives us, you know, a way of not facing it. So I, you know, I, I don't want to sound like there are no answers. I think that the answers are that we need human capital and leaders and people on the ground, um, not just, you know, relatively elite students joining an elite organization like Teach for America, but educators all across the country who I think tend to understand these issues firsthand. Um, I think we we need funding, but mm-hmm. honestly, not mm-hmm. throwing money at the problem, but strategic funding and initiatives to help, you know, to help increase innovation and, and help guide modest reforms. Um, I think that we need to pay attention to the children, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I think perhaps sounds a little simplistic, but I think... I think that the real success of an organization like Teach for America, the way that that program altered my own path, was that once you actually have contact with kids who are not born to opportunity, and you recognize that they are just kids, and that they are, as children are, right, occasionally awful and terrible and also brilliant, right? And beautiful. Um, I think once you recognize that those children have no real choices, and that you know when they're put in schools where they're not going to be given any real opportunities, where schools become some kind of holding cell, I think I think you say, okay, well we have to do something, right? And what does that look like? Um, my hope is not to try to create some kind of um, set of answers because I, I simply don't have them. And people who are much smarter and more accomplished than me, I'm sure, can can suggest modest solutions. But I, I look at many of my friends who are um, dedicated educators, and I think, well, many of them are doing that work. You know, they are um, they are in the schools or in the classrooms because that's their contribution. They're acting as principals um, or leading organizations which attempt to, you know, aid in reform. They are making efforts on the legislative level, which I think can make a tremendous difference. Um, I think that the answers are that we need to pay attention. Um, and rather than throw up our hands at these problems or, or dismiss them as intractable, I think that we could come together and try to do more. Um, I think most Americans don't necessarily really understand what we're talking about when we talk about educational inequality. We will uh, leave it there uh, out of time. Much more to talk about, of course. We uh, mentioned Serenity's poem, but we'll direct you to the book, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta, to, to check that out and, and many other uh, uh, of these children to meet and Michael Copperman's experiences. Uh, Michael Copperman um, is the author. The uh, the memoir is Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi uh, Delta. Uh, Michael Copperman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Moab Area Travel Council, who champions Utah's visitation to Grand County through tourism, events, and recreation in a manner that promotes and protects the beauty and scenery of our natural environment. Information available online at discovermoab.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.